0: Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow Rebel Souls. Oh, it's so good to be here with you. Life is a wild freaking ride, isn't it? Oh, just. Give me an amen if you're feeling that right now in your own space. Whatever you're doing as you're listening, just know I'm in it with you 100%. And that's why I love this community so much. We're here for each other. I love that we can spend this time and be on this journey together and be reminded every time that we're not in this alone. Whatever you're going through, you're not in it alone. I'm here with you. I got my arm around you. And I'm sharing my story and the stories of people I love to remind you that we're all going through our stuff and learning big ass lessons along the way, becoming who we're meant to be so we can share our gifts and have an impact and my guest today is badassery incarnate <laughs> he, he embodies he embodies the struggle he embodies the light and the dark he's somebody who knows all of this because he's a psychotherapist my friend Drew Newkirk who i met At Modern Elder Academy, you guys have heard me talk about that place, that experience last November. It's a place that is deep in my heart and soul that I want all of you to experience one day. Maybe you can even come down next March when I'm teaching, March of 2022, March 6th through 13th. And when their calendar goes live, I'm going to share the link with all of you because I love that place. And I know so many of you will too. It's a gorgeous, unique place in the world to reflect and find kindred spirits and kindred rebel souls. And Drew is exactly that for me. And if you guys remember Addison Brazil from an earlier episode, Addison, I connected with down there as well. And Drew and I would have, Drew and Addison and I, and Drew and I, and our whole posse down there, we would have these deep, just soul sessions in the pool and on the beach. And after long days of you know, either class or reflection, or some of us were doing work down there, whatever it is, we would come together and we would hold space for each other and challenge and inspire each other and sometimes just get into it. And Drew and I committed that one day, we would just hit the record button. And that was today. We finally got together to say, let's just have one of our crazy, deep, soulful conversations and let everybody in on it. And I was dying to do that for this community. And that's this conversation. So let me tell you a little bit about Drew. And then we're going to drop into a long and juicy convo. I just didn't have the heart to edit a ton of it. I want to share it with you. So this might be one that you do in a couple of bites and that's okay. Do it at your own pace and your own time. But no, there are so many goodies. So here's a little bit about my friend Drew. I love that he describes himself as a cool guy who sometimes goes too far, often goes just far enough. I mean, tell me. Doesn't that say everything like that says rebel soul right there. So he is a licensed psychotherapist. I love to call him Dr. Drew, even though I know there's a Dr. Drew out there, who, by the way, is not nearly as cool as Drew Dog, Mr. Drew Newkirk. Um, and he's, he's hellbent on helping his clients find freedom. You guys know that's my number one value. And that's really what sabbatical is all about. Freedom and fulfillment. And so Drew gives us his spin on that. And I love, we don't talk about what he's rebelling for until the very end. So I'm going to give it away. And as a teaser say, he is rebelling for helping people understand things about themselves that they didn't know they wanted to know. And honestly, that frames the entire winding conversation. He's this beautiful mirror for us of helping us excavate what we didn't know we wanted to know. We go on a journey through the Enneagram and how that's a profound tool for knowing ourselves and pop into the show notes, you guys, there are resources. If you don't know your Enneagram type, we got you covered. So know that that's waiting for you at the end after you hear his perspective And one of the things I love about how he helps us know what we didn't know we wanted to know about ourselves is through the lens of pop culture. He has a number of series on YouTube that use pop culture as psychology. And one of my favorite that we dive deep into is Seinfeld as psychologist in all of the profound lessons we can learn. And it's beautiful because Drew just has such a cool way of helping us see things through characters, personalities, personas, famous people like Seinfeld, songs that have so much meaning and really hold up the mirror to us as humans on our journey. And through this lens, Drew's learned so much about himself that he shares very vulnerably. I learned so much about myself through my sessions with Drew in the pool and through Seinfeld as psychologist, through the lens of Steinbeck and Springsteen and so many other pop culture artists that he brings into his work. And we talk about his lifelong mission of creating a show about how music can save your life and how that's been a massive struggle and really just rejection after rejection after rejection and how rejection is redirection in our lives and our lives are never a straight line of perfectly consecutive points exactly as we've planned. And we both reflect on our journeys and everything in between. So welcome to Baja Mexico around the pool with Drew and I. And uh, I I am intentionally starting this conversation just dropping you in to Drew Riffine on his man crush on Tom Selleck, Magnum P.I. Nuff said enjoy.
1: So I have a non-sexual crush on Tom Selleck. Did you know that from Magnum PI? I
0: did not know that. No.
1: Yeah. Wow. So I have a, a whole plethora of Hawaiian shirts. This oh one's my God. special for you. This is my rebel soul.
0: Oh my gear. God. Okay. I didn't even know Hawaiian shirts could be rebel. I, this is taking me into a whole new territory. I love it. I
1: love it. There's there's two types of Hawaiian shirts. There's the Hawaiian shirts that old golf guys wear. And then there's the Hawaiian shirts that Magnum P.I. wears. And then uh. Drew goes and finds levels of connection with Tom Selleck in his 80s glory that manifests the Magnum P.I. vibe.
0: Ooh! All right. So we got a you know cool hipster tatted dude who's bringing Hawaiian shirts back. I love this. I can't let that go without asking you. So what is the number one thing about Tom Selleck that drives your crush?
1: Oh well. So this is much more of an '80s thing, but he he. I think the show Magnum PI was my early connection to being strong and tender at the same time. Oh. Both able to punch a man if he needs to be punched, but also just put your arm around somebody and talk about their emotions with them. And Tom Selleck in that character really, I think, represented the broad range of 80s masculinity in its finest. Now, I grant that all the punching and the shooting were probably... (laughs) not suited for, you know, today's culture. But back then, you were able to see all of this uh, gusto and strength, but also just that glimmer in the eye that says, hey, I understand. You can be real with me. I I knew all that at eight years old. That's pretty incredible.
0: I, I am also, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. Love it. I don't even, I don't really have a girl crush on Tom Selleck, but I love everything you just described. And what a beautiful way for you to introduce yourself to our Rebel Souls community. Welcome, my friend, Drew, psychotherapist extraordinaire. Dear friend, I feel like I'm going to bring our fellow Rebel Souls into the context of this. It is like you and I are sitting in the pool in El Pescadero, Mexico, about an hour up the coast from Cabo, where the desert meets the ocean in one of the most magical places I've ever been. And you are now a land owner in. Congrats. I went all in. Thank you. Where we had, I don't really even know how to describe these. You're great with language too. So let's give this a go. Like, a combination of like, it was like a soul sash meets the therapist's couch <laughs> meets, you know, a party with cocktails and some, you know, deep diving after a few too many cocktails, you know, meets like Soho House, <laughs> Yes, all, all in this space called the Modern Elder Academy, which is what brought you and I together. And we realized like literally every day for the nearly month that we were together, I think it actually was a full month that we were together. Uh-huh. We were having, I'm getting chills just saying this, we were having the most inspiring like thought provoking deep sometimes challenging and angering conversations and i'm like i remember looking at you one day going dude we've got to record this
1: shit what we're doing right now here we are finally it's a good example of what life should be minus the copious amounts of wine and margaritas however you ever you know the the part of star wars where they're about to go into the deep dark places, but they go to that bar first where all the kooky cats are at.
0: Yes!
1: (laughs) Now, see, that, that I think in mythology, that moment where they go to that bar is their beginning of the entryway into this deeper place of the soul. And so the characters they were around were all these characters that had a lot of experience in that world. And they didn't, and so they were like, "What the hell's going on here?" And I think for anybody who would have entered into that pool area, they would have got a hint of, "Oh, these are some characters who have been into the depths and have come back with their own different narratives, their own special ways to see uh, deep time, past, present, and future, all at once. I know I'm getting way metaphysical here, but I think that group, for the most part, some maybe were a bit more raw and, and less accustomed to that deep diving, had a lot of narrative that they didn't have to speak out, but they were embodying. And, and it happened whether you were drinking, swimming, looking at the, the scenery around, or a Rando was coming in and we were embracing them. It, it was there that you can kind of feel this history that each person had of struggle, reorder, and this, this kind of new way of living yeah. that we were getting to play out there.
0: Yeah, I love that description for so many reasons, because we've had this conversation that one of the many connection points we all had, what truly brought us together in that pool and desierto every single day, whether we had spent the day working, whether you had been in psychotherapist mode, which you were, you know, usually a couple days a week, you know, some of us leading... I was trying to record podcasts. We were reflecting, Mm -hmm. you know, some of us were participating in the beautiful teaching and the courses that Chip and Christine and Jeff were offering, all of it, wherever we had been during the day, we kind of collected and met and deeply connected. And what I think we realized is we were all in the work. We Mm. were all, you know, at different stages. We were down there for different reasons, but we were all on this journey and we embraced its kind of perfect imperfectness, right?
1: Well, and that is the journey. The journey is to see the partially good, not full, not totally healed, not um, arrived. And now you've got it. It's all real life and real wisdom and and real leadership is about knowing that you don't have all the answers and that you are a fellow journeyer. And and that's particularly tough for me. And I think I've probably expressed that to you. And there's times when I want to own how much I've grown. And I am now here and present in our experience with each other and down there. We weren't overly editing because it would have come off as phony and bullshitty. And I think the, the leadership set that tone. Um, and I, I call them leaders, but f- fellow sojourners. And then the folks who have congregate found themselves there somehow, are also saying, that's the noise of a car metaphorically. That's the, the banging of uh, hammer against nail. But also that's the sound of that bird. And there's the hummingbird. And you can actually hear its, its wings. The beauty and the darkness together.
0: Yeah.
1: And not hiding from it and not trying to overly edit. And I, I think that was, that's what life should be. Somehow it, it got fluffed up so we're all posing and fronting. I, I, I use that kind of maybe hyperbole that we're all doing it. But I think that the way that we as friends have tried to work is to say, you know what, actually, I didn't like the way you said that. Mm. Or, you know, tell me more about that thing that's really hard to talk about. And I don't really want to. I think you should because this is the right place to do it because it's safe.
0: Yeah, we created a safe space for each other and we have continued to, which is beautiful, which is why I'm excited to share this with my community because I've gotten so much out of this friendship and your... Your wisdom, watching you on the journey, witnessing, you know, the light in the dark in you, witnessing you try to integrate a lot of what was coming up. So I've done many, 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 quote unquote, ads for Modern Elder, <laughs> Elder Academy because, yeah. you know, while I was down there and since then... I I it it comes up. Addison Brazil has spent time with us on this podcast. You're now spending time. I reference it often because I'm going back to teach. You and I, with our posse of cool cats, are gonna spend time again in November. It's become a space, it's become a real soul space for me. Mm. And it is a safe and brave space to have these conversations. And I want to share. That with this whole community. And I want to have, you know, I, I want you and I to dive into some of the stuff that we spoke about then and now, but in the current context of our lives. So, I mean, one of the things I adore about you is you are intense, you are a psychotherapist at your core. You are also willing to be vulnerable, you are also willing to go there in conversation and not be perfect and not, you know, have it all come out just right and not have to look like you've got it all figured out. You're really honest and vulnerable about all of that. And some of the way that I've heard you express that is by taking, I mean, you by talking to us about the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And you have such a pro- like deep and profound understanding about the Enneagram that I think it would be a miss for us to not talk about it a little bit in yeah. this conversation because I'm somebody, I, I want to talk about what is the Enneagram because there might be some folks listening to this who don't know it. And I want to hear it in your words. I've referenced, I referenced it a little bit in the book and I've referenced it since, but let's go there here. And what I love about it is that You were able to sit in that pool or that hot tub or around that dinner table or on the beach in a soul circle and help us see ourselves more clearly through the lens of the Enneagram. And let's be honest, the beginning of all of this, we're doing the work is a commitment to know ourselves. And that's a forever journey. And the Enneagram for me, and I know for you, has been a really powerful tool, if you want to call it that, for helping me to understand me. And you took it layers deeper. What is the Enneagram? What brought you to the Enneagram? Let's figure out where we want to go from there.
1: Yeah, weird, weird uh, moment. I was down in uh, El Pescadero, what, two or three weeks ago. And I got to sit down with Chip and just talk about life a little bit. And what brought me down to that place was that I was reading uh, Richard Rohr, which is a a mentor of mine in absentia, uh, a person that I've listened to and read and kind of get a daily devotional from and helped me really understand God differently uh, than than how I was brought up and maybe a bit more of that evangelical fundamental, not fundamentalist, but just more easier answers to hard questions. And I think Richard War started helping me see more depths to God and more mystery in the sense of um, being a mystic, a Christian mystic. So I was talking to Chip and I knew Chip was in the Richard War too. And I was introduced to the Enneagram through his writing. Chip and Richard just met about a month ago in Santa Fe, where... I saw Modern his video. Yeah, and I was first thing I said to Chip was like, okay, I need a meeting. I need a meeting with, with Richard. Um, not because I, I geek out or fanboy, but because just the profound shift in thinking that I've gotten from Richard Rohr, and especially with the Enneagram, was powerful. So, so I'm going to just do a real quick shoot around on this video. I'm a badass gardener.
0: I am learning something new every time I speak with you.
1: So the people in my neighborhood down in Long Beach Island, New Jersey, where my family has a beach house, uh, they will see me in my garden with my shirt off and all the tats and the sweat and the, the, the passion about my garden. And what I love about this garden and what I hate about this garden is the constant maintenance I have to do the clipping of the the dead flowers, the weeding, um, the getting rid of any kind of, whether it's uh, some kind of disease that a a plant has. It's sometimes that the bushes, the roots are going too far and smothering the flowers' roots. There's all that kind of stuff going on. And this is the Enneagram. The Enneagram is essentially nine sins or nine uh, kind of, Traps, things that we do that are our go to. And they are based on the seven deadly sins plus two. And so, what they suggest is that each of us struggles with one more than others. Mine's envy. And so, therefore, that fuels me. Somehow in life, I learned to defend myself by using envy to power the train, both good and bad. So, in the sense, my best of me, the flowers, and the worst of me, the roots, are living together. And the Enneagram kind of teaches us that we have to figure out what those, those weeds are and start to pick them. Mm-hmm. And the longer that flower bed is there, the more, the, you know, and it's not being tended to, the more those weeds are smothering the flowers and the flowers cease to exist or grow. And so as we learn ourselves more, we're weeding faster and faster and faster. The weeds never stop coming up. You know that you will never be perfect in this, this world. And so you have to get really good at digging in the dirt and finding where the weeds are. And this is essentially our strengths and weaknesses. If I am suffering from envy more than the other sins, then I am going to be tempted to compare myself, to contrast, to compete with others because they have not necessarily money for me, but they have gifts that I think are more powerful than my gifts. And I want them because I want to become mm. this perfect human. What I have to acknowledge is I have certain flowers that are great. And I have to appreciate those flowers and they don't need to be the same flowers everybody else has.
0: Well, you provoked a little envy in me, let's be honest, just seeing where you are right now. Your beautiful garden, The I just love that. I love um, the Jersey seashore is so beautiful. Um, so yeah, let's, so you are an Enneagram 4. So yep. when you say, you know, one of your primary drivers, it's, I love how you just described the Enneagram. I've always thought about it as, understanding your worldview and how you're wired. And you just kind of took it layers deeper. So you're an Enneagram four and I'm an Enneagram seven. I think I'm a seven, four, eight, actually. My my tri-type or whatever that's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is getting more sophisticated than we've uh-huh. got time we don't to, need to do. Get into that. Yeah. No, we're not. We're not going to get into that. It's just so let's talk about the four and the seven. I want to talk a little bit about. So, how would you describe a four? How would you describe yourself? So beyond envy, being the driver, what does it look well, like? You
1: called me. You called me intense before, which I I actually had a hard time with for a lot of life. People did call me that, and. Well, I come to find what got me into it when I, when I heard Richard talking about it, I went and did the test. I looked at the descriptions and I've been in therapy for 20 years and I've taken notes on every session that I've been in. And when I matched the notes of what I struggle with in life with what the four struggles with, it was an identical match. So I am like a hardcore four. Um, I really fit. I don't like I don't really have that oh, I'm not sure. it was like, holy shit, this is it. And the four is intense. the four is artistic, but the four, since the beginning at some level, was able to uh, sit with darkness, hell, in a sense, um, the pains and the woes of life they are very, very connected to. so if you're telling me. I'm going to make this up. You have not told me this, but let's just say my dad did such and such to me that was overtly uh, dark when I was a kid and it happened repetitively. It does not make me jump, twitch. I am, it actually pulls me in further because I am very comfortable with the darkness. Now, as, as we are these intense people, we are just as familiar with peeking into heaven, seeing what we like, grabbing it, coming back down to earth and showing it to you. So we tend to be very good artists. We tend to be uh, really good in the social fields of helping um, because we can show a person what's light about them, what's beautiful about them, but we will not dismiss the darkness. And so the envy fuels that because the, the envy is this thing that we want to take in all the great stuff we want to become superheroes in a sense. We want to have all of the weapons. What we have to realize is that we we're never, if we do that, we dilute ourselves. We have to deal with the strengths we have and magnify them and enjoy them and love them and not need what everybody else has. That's the work. That's the submers the subversive work of the Enneagram. It kind of shows you if you keep on doing this, you're screwed. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the, the quirky. We tend to be quirky. We tend to be able to really go deep really quickly. And we have a powerful, like I said, understanding of both weeds and flowers and how to help people see both. We, will, we won't let you get away with fluffing mm. up life, but we won't get, let you get away of being a victim either. Yeah, That's when we're healthy.
0: Yeah, I love it. It is truly, I mean, I think the four, better than most other types, certainly than the seven, which we'll talk about in a second, does a better job of respecting, acknowledging, and integrating both the lightness and the darkness. We do the best job at that. Yeah.
1: Which makes us a pain in the ass to ourselves and others. It really
0: it is the 100%. burden of
1: our lives. You will hate to be around us at times, and you will want nothing but to be around us at times. And that is true for ourselves. Yeah. On a daily basis, there's at least one swing in the day where I go, "God, I just want to get out of this skin. I hate myself." Most of the time, I feel pretty good about me.
0: Especially when I'm wearing the Magnum PI Hawaiian shirt. When
1: I am, <laughs> when I am tapping into my inner Tom Selleck, I am. Um, Mostly enjoying me, just wishing I was as tall as him. Uh, but that's it. I'm I'm nearly six one. And it it's it's still when a person who's six three walks past me, I want it. And in that moment, the work I have to do is to say, that's your envy speaking. Be happy with how tall you are. Yeah. It's perfect for you. Oh, but I hate having to do it.
0: I'm exactly as I was meant to be. It's so hard. It's so hard in this shiny, glittery, you know, polished world that we live in. It's bullshit. More of us showing up as we are is what we need. And I love that you model that. You know that a big part of my work and my mission in the world, I don't do it perfectly every day. In fact, I never do it perfectly. I do it authentically, right? Is to share, you know, my perfectly imperfect self. And I do talk about one of those things I talk about, you know, how, I mean, the Enneagram sort of like blew my world wide open as I got deeper into it, because I realized that as a seven, like we
1: fear
0: dealing with pain. Mm -hmm. We do not want to sit with that emotion. So we tend to be the funnest fucking people in the pool because we're like, Hey squirrel over here, let's have some fun. Uh-huh. Right? So yes. tell me more about your perspective because you gave me some really valuable nuggets as we dug into
1: this. Well, they're, they're, so in the tri-type sense, I'm a, a four, seven, eight. I challenge the shit oh, yeah. out of people because I got the eight part. But the seven part wants to run. So the eight part wants to stay and fight. Seven part wants to run for the hills. And so the seven, like you said, they, they, they indulge. They're indulgent. And they will go grab life and suck out the marrow. Now they're going to try to suck out the fun stuff. Primarily the dark stuff. They're like, eh, let's put that over there. I'd rather like climb the mountain, ride the race, run the marathon. They have a tougher time sitting still staying in that heavy space and dealing with their shit. So the sevens like yourself who have decided, um, my soul's high adventure is that I have to listen to the demand of my soul, which says I have to either deal with this thing and quit this thing to do this other thing, is a really hard thing for a seven. It's not as hard for a four because they grew up thinking I have to quit this thing to do this thing that my soul is about, because yeah. their soul's everything. Yeah. Where being on the road, having the adventure is the most important thing for an unhealthy seven. As a seven gets healthier, they start dealing with their problems. They dig deep as the garbage men are picking up the garbage right now. The seven tends to, in health, be able to pick up their garbage, look through it, understand what they ate, what the refuge is, and not just deal with the eating, which is the Mm -hmm. good part. They're now dealing with the excretion, the Mm -hmm. shitting it out and going, oh, this is what shit looks like. So. That's a seven's hard work is to stay in the moment. I had a seven client yesterday who's uh, struggling with a relationship and, and is constantly in the, do I, I stay or I go? Because those are the two easy options. And the harder thing is to be patient to not have an answer, to stick with a uh, lack of certitude and mystery and that nothing is quick. And so if they can hold the contradictions patiently and the paradoxes patiently, that is the highest goal of a seven. And because they are a seven, they will struggle with it the rest of their life. They have to keep on coming back. I want to just say this one last thing. I know I'm, I'm on a roll. My hardest times with you, whether it be at the pool or when I'm sharing, as a four, sometimes I'll share something just to share it to connect. Sometimes I'm sharing it because I want feedback. Sometimes I'm sharing it because it just needs to come out of the system. I'll usually just throw it out there. And often I won't tell a person why I'm doing it. But if I don't tell a seven, and sometimes I didn't tell you why, the, the goal of my sharing, you could easily go into fixing role. Mm. And go, have you tried this? Or think about this? Or here's this nugget. And it, it, I wasn't asking for it. That was on me. When I'm with a seven, I should sometimes go, hey, this is I'm sharing this because I just need to get out of my system, not because I need an answer. Or when I'm with you and I need an answer, go, hey, Shelly, this is what I'm looking for. What do you think? And I would often do that with you. Like, I got this meeting later. How do you think I should enter into it? And then you might throw that nugget out. But I might know exactly how I need to go into the meeting. I just want to vent about how hard the meeting's going to be. And you might jump in unless I tell you And that's like natural for a seven.
0: It's also a great lesson for all of us, right? I mean, for regardless of what Enneagram type you are. And by the way, I want to say you have a great link that you sent around to our group that I'd love to put in the show notes here that helped everyone in the group, if they didn't already know, discover what Enneagram type they are. So if you can send me that, I'd love to include it for our community to dig deeper. And we'll also link to the Richard Rohr books on Enneagram because... You guys, this is powerful in in the the work of self-discovery and self-awareness, which leads to this journey of living more authentically and courageously and purposefully. It starts here, understanding your weeds and your flowers, to use your gardening metaphor. And it's so so incredibly powerful. I think the broader lesson in what you just said is we all can do a better job of asking for what we need in the moment, yes. right? It, because yep. I, I find myself sometimes spewing things out and I'm not clear what I need or what I want back from the person on the receiving end. And sometimes I just had this happen on Monday. I had somebody in the business resign and I called someone else and all I wanted Was for this person to listen to me. I just needed to vent. I needed to cry. I needed to be mad. I needed to just flip out for fifteen minutes. That's all Uh I needed, and I failed to say that. So that person also went into coach mode, and I finally broke down about fifteen minutes later. I'm like, I don't fucking want to be coached right now. Uh When in reality. I realized I backed up and I was like, wow, sorry. I just unloaded on you. I'm not sorry. I vented. I I wish that I would have stated what I really needed. Oftentimes what we need in the moment. And sometimes when you and I were in the pool together, all we really need was needed was to be heard and witnessed and supported by the other person. What a beautiful reminder to all of us. That has nothing to do with an Enneagram number, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Right. And it, 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 you know, there's and this shoots to the ego, which again I've I've addressed in my own intensity and in my own work. I do this for a living, right? I'm I'm sh- I'm shooting story with people, forty hours a week, plus doing my own work. When I'm sharing something and I know the solution or I know the answer, my ego gets like roughed up when somebody goes, "Here, have you tried this?" And I'm like, "That's fucking one o one of therapy." I'm at 702, and you're killing me with that feedback. Um, but partially that's on me to, to chisel away the, the parts of my ego that aren't working. The small story stuff that wants to be inflated and to know, and for you to know, I know. But at the same time, there is that need to go, hey, thank you for that. I appreciate what you just tried to do there. This is what I actually needed. And so with my clients, a lot of what I do is say, what do you need today? Because quite frankly, and sometimes it, again, uh, it hits my ego a little bit. They go, I just need you to listen. I go, oh, but I got so much to offer. I've just read a book on this today. And they're like, nah, I just need you to to listen to how much my mom sucks. Yeah. Like, Okay but they knew it and part of what the growth in in their work was is that's one of the first things we worked on is tell me what you need yes
0: It's such a lesson. I mean, for everyone listening to us, please take this. I have to remind myself every single day. I love that this is coming up in the conversation right in this moment because clearly I needed that reminder this week. And that's one of the many things I love about doing this podcast is like, I get served up the lessons left, right, and center that the Mm. universe, like, hey, Shelly, remember that thing? (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah, totally. And it's so powerful. So ask for what we need, be really clear on what we're looking for. And also for all of us, let's remember, like, as humans, our big, our deepest desire is to be seen, heard and loved. And sometimes that's all someone needs in an engagement. And I will say out loud right now, that is one of the many reasons why I love our relationship. I feel seen, heard, and loved in your presence. And Mm. I hope you feel the same, that we give that gift to each other and then we slug it out. totally. All right, I want to I want to talk about something that I didn't even realize you were doing. This new series that you've created, taking your love and reverence for Seinfeld and creating this artist therapy series on YouTube. How did I not know about this? I've been binging it for the last few days and there were so many nuggets in it for Mm. me. So I it literally was just one of those things I was like, we've got to talk about this. I did not prepare you for this. But I know you'll go there, which is another reason I love you. So let's talk about like, what inspired you to do this. And then I want to share with you some of the things that were the frankly, the mic drops for me as I was listening. But I was one of the biggest mic drops was just like, wow, I love that you took something that is popular culture that you love, you know, this guy you love and you were extracting the lessons from it. Like what a cool way for us all to reflect on human mm. behavior and psychology. So yeah. what led you, what led you to this? And then I want to, I want to share with you a few things that stood out that we can dive into.
1: Totally three things. One is it was born in our time in Faha. Okay. So you know the bigger thing I'm working on that I've been working on for seven years is a very Enneagram for intense here I am world. I'm gonna bring it to the highest stage. And that thing, you know, I was signed by Sony Records and we were. I mean, just
0: explain what the thing is because we'll come. I want to circle back to it. Let's just let it all blend together.
1: So I've definitely been one of those people who likes the reveal and doesn't like to put too much out into the world tell the big things there so my my presence publicly has been very limited i actually have not done a podcast till i got back from mexico with you guys yeah. and what i shared in mexico was why i went to modern elder the first time two and a half years ago which was i had developed a show which was my dream. My dream was not to do one-on-one therapy in an office. Like my, I'm way too intense for that. It's, that's actually at times feels very uh, preparatory. But yeah. I wanted to create art. And me and my brother, seven years ago, came up with this idea for a show called The Songs That Saved Your Life, about a song that got you through a hard time And it was based on this, the lyrics of this song that say, these are the songs that made you cry and the songs that saved your life. Don't forget me when you're in a good place. And so the idea would be that I would interview celebrities and talk about that one song that got them through the hard time. And as a therapist and the host, I'd pull out the narrative and I'd get into all the nooks and crannies and build this story that would be what, half an hour long or whatever on TV. And within, uh, we, we filmed some just like episodes with some minor celebrities to see what it would look like. And we did a Kickstarter and Sony Records found out about us within 10 days of the Kickstarter. So the Kickstarter wasn't over and we were negotiating with Sony. We ended up using the Kickstarter money to sign the contract with Sony. It didn't go anywhere. I think there's a n- number of reasons, but I don't need to go into it. But it never died. And that was, that's big for me. Uh, I can let things go. The seven part goes, let's move on to the next thing. For seven years, this hasn't died. So two and a half years ago, I went to Modern Elder, 41 years old, saying, do I need to give this thing up? I've, I've, it didn't work out with Sony. Um, I keep on pushing it. And it's not finding the right partners. The, the partners that could actually give the money and get the platform and do it. And we've come close so many times. I've been in, you know, meetings with big networks and yada yada yada. And so I went to Mexico the first time for that week long at Modern Elder to go. Do I give this up or not? And I came back going, no, I do not. And then what, soon what after, what
0: shifted? What can I just ask? What shifted for you? I don't know important.
1: that. I don't know that I ever wanted to give it up. I. I I think it was part of the process. Oh, I'm not saying our famous phrase, but it was part of... I'm
0: going to do it! You are! Uh, You
1: you suck. Um, High intentions, low attachment. I had to... I had to high high la it. I had to... High-la. 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 I like to say Uh, high la. Um, I'm me. I do it the way I want to do it.
0: la da For
1: seven years... It was, it has been, this was five years ago, a process of deep, deep, deep attachment and deep, deep, deep detachment. Mm. Committed to the idea, committed to the passion and, the, and the, the team and the getting it off the ground, while also saying it doesn't need to be exactly how I think it's going to be. It doesn't need to happen when, it's, when I want it to happen. And all of the things. And for five years, I've probably grown more than I've ever grown. I've started groups. I've, I've read things. I've connected to people in, in ways that I just couldn't have. So from 35 to 40 was like a blast of the most profound, deep work I've ever done. So I think what was happening in Modern Elder was a celebration of being over 40, having given all this energy to it, it wasn't really, am I going to give it up or not? It was, here's another version of detachment I need to go through. And part of that was just the idea of, do I keep it or not? I think I was just playing with that in my head, but it was really, yeah. it was really that I was going to keep going.
0: Well, and can, sorry, just, just to pause there, because what's so important, and I've seen you do this a couple times, is helping us realize that the how is never mm. really up to us. Right, You know the thing. You know what you're passionate about creating. You know there's something here. I believe there's something there. But how it happens and when it happens, right? Like Brene always says, not on your terms and not on your timeline. (laughs) The universe will be sure of that.
1: Yeah. And so what that requires us to do is practice death constantly. All the deaths of my little internal narratives of how the thing would play out, have had to die. And I think going to Modern Elder was the idea of practicing death another time. Socrates says you have to practice death regularly. And, and the sages of the world say something along that line. Um, that the idea of practicing death is important. It's, it's essentially grieving. It's letting things go. and so. My grandiose ideas of how this thing would play out had to die daily, and I knew it. I wasn't an idiot. I was reading all this stuff. I was, I was practicing uh, disorder, order, and reorder constantly. Yeah. So this was another version of it. And killing tons of the naivety and the need to control and explain and understand. Now, we're always doing that. I'm helping, that, helping my clients do that all the time. But this was just a constant onslaught on my ego in a good way. And so as I, I I kept on doing that, then COVID happened. And it was a year of not having the possibility of doing anything with it soon after I came back from Mexico. There was beauty in that. And so when I went back to Mexico again, I had no idea I was going to be thinking of this because I had detached enough to not overthink it. And then when I was around you guys. No offense to any of you, but we were all kind of heavy hitters in our world. I, fuck, this is my ego. But there was nobody there that I went, oh, shit, uh, I'm in the presence of somebody who's blowing me away. Everybody was great. I, I loved everybody and their friends, but everyone felt mutual. And but everybody was doing some really cool stuff publicly. Now, I was trying to do this huge thing publicly and it wasn't working. And I went, fuck, my ego needs to die right here. I need to start putting out stuff publicly without the hope of it making me famous, successful in a crazy way. Just what do I love? Yes. And I came up with the first thing was, which I don't know if you saw on my Instagram as we're talking about the Enneagram was the Enneagram. And then I went, I don't really care so much about all of the Enneagram. I care about Forbes. So what if I get really niche and I created my first YouTube series, which is four by four, four things every Enneagram four needs to know about the Enneagram uh, given by a four. And so it's just catered to fours. And I did 15 episodes on that. And I'll continue to do them, just four fours. It's a very niche group. One, it's so, only so many people are in the Enneagram and only so many people are fours and only so many people are on YouTube. So I was actually limiting my world, but also being out there. Yeah. I also decided to say yes to every podcast that I had respect for because people had asked me throughout the years, and then I said, "What are the other things I love after I get the Enneagram stuff on? Well, I have these five mentors that I'm really that, that are not kind of unique to therapists who are kind of into modalities and psychotherapists and and what kind of uh, modality do I use i'm like I like John Steinbeck, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Seinfeld, yes, Carl Jung, uh, Reynard Marie Rilke. These are some of my favorite quotes. You know, the way these people speak is how I like to speak. So I did a three-part series on Seinfeld, and it's called Seinfeld as Psychologist. And then I took the intersection of Steinbeck and, and Springsteen, two of The 20th century's biggest American kind of uh, poets and put their narratives together because there's a lot of crossover and how they live their life, some of the struggles they have, and some of the things they're passionate about, social causes and and the working man and the struggle. And so there's a five-part series on Seinfeld and Springsteen. They hardly get any views, but that My intention was to do what I love and the people who get it will find it ultimately because it lives in perpetuity on YouTube. And so yesterday I had a client from Australia and the the day before that I had a client from Iowa, Canada, uh, uh, California, all from YouTube. And I just started it three months ago. So
0: your people will find you. Your people... I mean, this is such a powerful lesson for all of us. And again, a great reminder for me. It's one of the reasons I do the podcast because it forces me to show up every damn week. And I show up with people I love on topics I'm passionate about you know, and people who are doing shit in the world. And most of it's big shit in the world, but we all got to start somewhere. I mean, so absolutely. It's like your people will find you. It's a great filter for like, you know, you love me or you don't. I mean, there are a lot Uh of people who don't love my work, who don't love my language, who don't love, you know, the rebel perspective, but they're not the ones listening to us Mm. right now. Our rebel souls are in this community wanting to learn from you. And so, I would remind everybody of the invitation every single one of us has every single day to go before we're ready. So just to dive into this, one of the lessons that I wrote down, I did binge that and I started this Steinbeck and Springsteen because two of my faves as well, especially Springsteen. So I just really enjoyed hearing like your perspective on it. The Seinfeld one, I, I, well, I wrote down lots of things, but kind of four things that I thought were just mega insights for me. I love how you talk about, and it's so relevant for what you just said about yourself, that we have to deal with the ways that we're hiding our talents from the world Mm, mm. and how, you know, how Seinfeld starts to reveal that, like, what are we not sharing with the world? How are we ignoring our own talents? So That's one of the things. And so I applaud you for going, actually, this is something I'm really good at. And this is Drew's unique perspective on the world. And my people are going to get it. I think we worry about others not getting it. It's like, yeah, a lot of people won't get it, but that's
1: okay. I think what I enjoyed about our time down in Mexico is it hit me there that it was time to put that stuff out in the world. But really, to your point, put the stuff I love out, not trying to have a catch-all. That was not going to work for me. And I wouldn't have given a shit. And so I needed to find a thing that might have a small audience, but had a huge part of my heart.
0: It's your soul. Like when I was watching you, this is your soul embodied. And that's what was so beautiful. And I don't mean that in any sort of cliche way. I mean that in a really celebratory celebratory and powerful way and what a great, you know, model for all of us. Like you really talk about like, you know, we stick stay in a life of constant comparison. It will be the death of us because all of the sharp, pointy edges and unique, you know, quirks of who we are in the world start to get, you know, sanded away. And then who are we? And what are we? So you talk about this con, this concept of healthy disregard. And how can we have more healthy? Can you talk about that? Because I was like, oh fuck yeah, I need more of that in my life. <laughs>
1: it can come off to the wrong person, especially because it's East Coast type of vibe of fuck you you know? But yeah. it is this, like, I know what my lane is and I know that I do my lane well. I've worked hard at my lane. I've slugged away. I've carried the, uh, the heavy weight of my lane. And I can own that this is good and I am good at it. And I am not perfect at it, but I'm working on it. And I have this ability to not give the finger to people because they don't get it, because that would be unhealthy, but to not overly let their voice contend with my soul, Mm. my heart that says, this is the path. Having that internal knowledge, like, no, this is it. This is how I do it. And this is good. And I'm going to have a healthy disregard for what people think about it. Because if I listen to all the voices, it's going to dilute and muddle up, trample on what are my gifts. And so that's a model for me. And it is a thing that's helped me along in the last few years of just going, oh, no, 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 no. Narrow this down a bit. And you're, you better know that the voice within you and the voice from outside are going to want you to stop doing certain things. And you got to know your role. You got to know your lane.
0: And own your lane, right? And don't be looking around at others to be going like this. Because people will be envious. They, you know, they... Who knows what's coming up? Maybe they tried that thing. Maybe they have different expectations of you. Part of this journey is letting go of all of that. And really, I mean, that's why knowing thyself and starting from the inside out is so key to this. And that's what you're embracing. I'm watching it happen. Like I'm witnessing your growth from having met you less than a year ago. And I'm so excited to be with the you who shows up next, this coming November, right? We're both going to be different people. We're both getting closer to the true expression of ourselves in the world. And I want everyone who's listening to this to be inspired by that. It's just taking one little tiny, usually scary shit step every single day to own who you are and your voice and your expression of what you love. You know, even if it's like, oh, my God, people aren't going to understand us or understand me. Give it a shot. How do you know? How do you know if you don't try? Go before you're ready.
1: Let me add a cherry on that. Because I think some people will hear, I know me, I don't need to listen to people. Mm. If you do not have an inner circle, you're fucked. And if you don't have compatriots, soul brothers and sisters and soul theys and thems and soul soul friends that you can really trust, you are going to do yourself a disservice because they will help you define what you are from the outside. And I was told years ago, If five people tell you you have a tail, you better turn around and see if you have a tail. But the same goes for asking six people, hey, do I ever have a tail? And if one says yes and five say no, then you'll have to listen to those five. And so I think even with the YouTube thing, I did push that by people, five, 10 people to say, hey, what did you see on this first one or these first five? I redid the first five three times because the, the 10 people that I asked may or may not have been right, but I instinctively knew some of the things that they were saying were right. And I had to redo the whole thing. And, you know, those are 20, 40 minutes each, but that was my inner circle saying, regard us. Okay. How a no. healthy disregard for people who don't get it, but regard the people who you've let in.
0: Yes. This is what I love Brene calls, you know, the people you haven't let in and who aren't in the arena and who aren't doing the work or putting themselves out there, they're the cheap seats. And we don't, I mean, the more credence you give to all the shit that's always going to be streaming from the cheap seats, the more you're going to play small and stay small and not put yourself out in the world. But the people who are in your support seats The people who are you're in your soul posse, who are there for you, who represent all of the things that you are and you want to be in the world and who inspire you, pay attention. That's exactly what you're saying. I love that. I love that. And and this is the last thing I wanted to say on the Seinfeld piece. We're going to put links to all of the to the whole series in the show notes, because I think it's powerful for everyone to listen to or those who feel drawn to it. Um, you talk, I think it's in the first one about the initiatory act and it feels so right to say this right now, because none of this starts without an initiatory act, without taking one step in the direction of who we are and who we want to become without showing up. It's exactly what you talked about coming back from Mexico. You're like, Mexico, you're like, wait, I, I haven't put myself out there. How do I want to put myself out there? How do I want to start expressing more of my unique point of view, especially as a therapist in this world?
1: Oh gosh, it just hit me though. I do want to say something and this is a, uh, it feels self-protective, but I, I think it's relevant. For seven years, I did put myself out there. Though. I have to own, I actually have to, to say that is, I was trying to do a thing that would have, if it made it been put out to millions of people right away. And I had to pitch it to some of the biggest of the bigs and get rejected constantly. So I I don't want to nullify that or diminish how hard that was for me to sit in the offices of A&E or talking to the executive at Amazon who had watched the thing and said, we like it, but. And. That made uh, something like YouTube less scary Mm. um, and less painful to put myself out there because I had been rejected by some of the people at a top level. That was the initiatory act for me was to get the, the production team to film the first ones, to show it to friends and family, to put it on Kickstarter. And the initiatory act is something Otto Rank, who was a disciple of uh, Freud, who then, like everyone with Freud, had a riff with Freud and pushed back because they were, I think, smarter than Freud and Freud hated that ultimately. Um, Otto Rank wrote a book that's very complicated. It's been synthesized since on the artist and the artist. Has one of the hardest jobs, which is the initiatory act of showing their art. Mm. It's not only doing the art, but then showing it. And Seinfeld talks about how comedy in general is this great war zone in which you instantly are going to be either found funny or not. There's an instant reaction. And a lot of people will express it instantly in the room, and so this 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 great eradicating uh, environment of shit. Mm. It will it will suss out what's great, but the initiatory act is yes, putting yourself in the zone in which you will be critiqued and denied and rejected, and if you don't have the guts for that, you've got to find it somewhere, and so. The real initiatory act for me in my life was stepping into those early years of just being a therapist. But then ultimately, how do I get this in front of execs and be denied or accepted? And that was way harder than, any, and still is today because this, this thing is not dead yet, um, is still harder than any YouTube situation.
0: Well, and what I love about uh, thank you for being vulnerable, first and foremost, I mean, for sharing that kind of in the moment revelation um, with all of us, what you just shared is like, guess what? We can never predict what this journey looks like. And the steps very rarely, if never, are in some kind of sequential, logical, predetermined order. They're just not. That's not life. And often, rejection is redirection. It's kind of course correcting us to say, "Is not going to happen that way. That doesn't mean give up. It just means that's not how it's meant to happen. So you've kind of like, you've taken the curvy path, which is pretty much the path we always take. And it only makes sense in the rear view mirror, right? It only makes sense if ever, right? Often it doesn't make sense. And there's no such thing as an overnight success. And, you know, bravo for sticking with it because it was that. That rejection was a redirection to say, this is going to happen in a different way. And at least for now, you were meant to put your talent, your gifts, your genius into the world in a different way. Possibly through YouTube, you then get noticed and songs that saved my life become something else. Right? Who knows?
1: Totally. Who knows? And our familiarity with rejection especially the artists out there, but anyone who is trying to do something hard, if you have no familiarity with rejection, get ready for it. Yeah. Because it's coming. And even in dating, you know, people are like, I don't want to do online dating. I go, you should just go out on 50 dates so you learn how to reject people well and get rejected. Then you will be ready to accept. And so, and I don't mean rejection, the type of rejection that's just, uh, gratuitous and brutal for brutal's sake, but a healthy rejection like this isn't good enough. Or this isn't for us. Sorry, yeah. we're
0: not a good fit. Okay, we're not we a good
1: fit. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, geez, that's um, that's a really good nudge for me as somebody who wants to get back into the dating world. Thanks for the reminder, <laughs> my friend. Yeah, it's like, wait a second.
1: Go be rejection hungry.
0: I know. That, but that's exactly right. We say the same thing. Like when I was getting trained in coaching, it was like, you know, yes lives in the land of no. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Like we used to go on challenges from my old coach to collect no's. Yeah. Because until you get collect- comfortable collecting no's, you're not playing big enough for the yes.
1: Yeah. So it's so, a great scene in Fight Club where they, uh, Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden says, I want you to go out and lose a fight. Yeah. And so, so the idea is to just get pummeled uh, as an act of learning how to deal with your own ego and your own sense of uh, rejection.
0: Yeah, this was the hardest part for me, and uh, I'll—I have one last, well, actually, two last quick questions for you. But I mean, the hardest part for me about putting my book in the world was that it is my heart and soul on paper. It is—it is so many personal and private parts of my story, my struggles, the light and the dark. And I intentionally included the dark because you want people to know you're not alone in going through this. Mm And in order to put that out there, I had to get real comfortable with like, I don't call it my dirty laundry, but the fact that people are going to know a lot more about me and what I was going through when some of them were putting me up on a pedestal, not having any idea. And that was okay. And some people aren't going to understand it. And I've gotten my criticism, but it's worth it because for every one silly little, you know what a privileged, ridiculous story kind of comment that I get standing naked in the arena. I get, you know, 10,000 comments that say, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for putting your arm around me and saying I got you. Thank you for making me realize I'm not alone and I'm not the only one going through this journey. That makes it all worth it. And I want everybody who's listening to this to hear that. That's what we do. That's what happens when we share our stories and our perspectives.
1: Yeah, they they know that you've they know that they've been seen by you. Yeah. And we want to be seen, we want to be known. And your book is allowing people to be seen, and therefore they're going to see others.
0: So I have to ask you, what is the song that saved your life?
1: A band from Sweden called Kent. And the song is called Till. Till it all ends, and the lyrics that really hit me were simple. It was just the chorus that said, "Are you happy now? Are you happy now? Are you happy now?" And without going into a long story, it connected me to when I graduated college. So right after September, well, before September 11th. I worked on the assembly line for General Motors in Linden, New Jersey, for the summer, and made five grand. I got paid. Uh, I got paid union money. And I traveled the world afterwards, but it, it was a month after September that I started traveling and nobody was traveling at that time. And the first place I went was Egypt. And I spent four weeks there and I was on a, a cruise down the Nile or up the Nile. The Nile runs north and the boat held 250 people. There was 21 of us, 10 Germans, 10 Dutch and me. I had my own tour guide and I I connected with a lot of the people who worked there. It wasn't the Germans and the Dutch were doing their own thing. And uh, um, one of the guys there spoke six languages and was just trying to see what his life was going to be without people traveling. And we got in this great conversation about, you know, Christians and Jews and Muslims and um, what had happened in 9-11 in America and the Middle East. And, It just was powerful. And I I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis at the time. And so I was kind of finding myself. I went onto the top of the boat. It was nighttime. And I was praying that this guy would come upstairs because I wanted to finish the conversation. And I swear 10 minutes later, he comes up. And there was this powerful moment where he looks me in the eye and he says, the people on the side of the road who were cleaning the road, all they have is Allah. and. Then he looks at me and he says, I'm 22, 21 years old. He goes, Drew, you are chosen. And I don't know what the hell he meant by that, but I weeped and weeped and weeped. And he just sat there, poised, let me weep. He looks me in the eye and he says, you are chosen. And I had no idea what that meant, but I knew it was powerful and I knew it wasn't, it was from beyond him. It was whether you call that God or the universe, he was speaking some power into my life as a 22-year-old man that was emboldened me to be confident about the future. Fast forward two years later, I'm in my bed at my parents' house, uh, 24 years old, having I was about six months into it and I was thinking about becoming a therapist and I'm listening to this song by Kent and the lyrics, Where Are You Happy? Now, are you happy now? And then I heard that guy's voice. You are chosen. I walked downstairs, knocked on my dad's door, asked him to come out. It was like three in the morning and I weeped in his arms. The next day I went, I found a counseling program and became a counselor. But the, the, the narrative is more about the brokenness I had decided to work on in my own therapy. The call on all of us, but the call on me to be honoring that we are all chosen or that I was chosen to do great things and to not deny that. And that song just reminds me consistently that when I am not, I don't like the word happy. I like the word joy, but when we are not contented or we're not, we're feeling our soul rumbling, we have to listen to it. And, that was what those lyrics mm, meant. That's to me.
0: so beautiful. And you reminded me of a quote that you, you articulated in the Seinfeld series that Letterman spoke to Seinfeld. And I wrote it down because I thought, God, every one of us should have this bl- emblazoned somewhere prominent on our bathroom mirror, on our refrigerator. But me- the quote is make sure you fail doing what you want to do because we're all going to fail if we're truly living life and playing in the arena we're going to fail over and over again so let's make sure it's doing what we want to do and you just so beautifully explained how that came to be in your life
1: yeah and and to our conversation before and some of this was being developed and this will be a thing I talk about in the future I had figured out in the last seven years what my purpose is. Defined it. And it is to help people understand things about themselves they didn't know they wanted to know. I tend to have that, like, whether I'm at a bar or in a therapy session or just out to eat or I bump into somebody. I have those moments with people. They go, oh, I didn't know that about myself. That's the table I sit at. But the chair I sit on and the four legs for me are psychology, music, hosting, and entertainment. And that's the manifestation of the show that I created. And that is the thing I want to definitively either fail at or succeed at. If you told me tomorrow, I'll give you a billion dollars, what will you do with it? I'd say, I will pay for the show. 10 episodes with the guests I want to get. And then I'll do whatever I need to do with the money afterwards. But it won't be go buy this, go buy that. It, it, it's, I want to fail at that. And Seinfeld made that decision to do the show, Seinfeld, the way he wanted to do it. And Larry David is very similar. They don't suffer fools and they don't do much that they don't want to do. And those, letter, that, those letters, those words from Letterman. If you know yourself well, you should know how to answer the question: What do you want to fail at at the highest level? And so, I have no real ego involved with failing over seven years at this. I'm using failing hyperbolically, but of not getting the show made because it still is the thing I want to do because it is the seat I sit on. It's the four loves, and still the purpose is there. And I can't think of anything else but music and healing that I would want to be involved in. And so until that comes, that is the the hill I want to die. And of course we know it could change, but failing at what, and we've talked about what you want to fail at in a sense, you know, like, um, and I think we're one of the things that draw us together is we both are comfortable getting shot down and killed on that, that hill. Uh, but we got to charge that hill. We just don't know how fucking big it is. Well, it just keeps and on we going. don't
0: see the other hill behind that hill and the other hill behind that hill, right? This is the way, this is the way it goes. This rebel souls podcast, which I love with all of my heart and soul, it is. It is a mm-hmm. manifestation of who I am in the world and everything I care about. And I bring people I love who are doing amazing things in the world on this show. This is a stepping stone to what I believe is going to be my talk show called The Orange Couch. That's what I want. Yep. That's what I want, and I want to write more books. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna. And all of that continues to demand that I show up in all of in all of my glory and all of my warts and all of my imperfections and figuring it out every mm. single day and that is what i will fail at that is what i will fail at and i invite every beautiful soul listening to this right now to really take this time to reflect and think about you know what do you, what do you love so much? What embodies who you are and what's deep in your soul that you're willing to fail at it. And most often that's tied to the thing that you're pretending not to know the thing that we're just trying to squish down. So let that be, let's end in that beautiful place of reflection and I'm sitting here like that's such a profound moment. And I'm also laughing because I didn't even ask you my signature question. We didn't start from the place of what are you rebelling for and actually love that we didn't do this. This was such a casual in the pool, Drew and Shelly conversation, which is exactly what we wanted it to be, what we committed to uh, doing in this, this space and time together. But I have to ask you, what's your short answer to? Summing this whole conversation up, What are you rebelling
1: for, Drew Dog? I'm rebelling for music, art, psychology, the characters out there to be seen visually. Mm. That's that's why I want to do the entertainment part visually. Finding out things about themselves and helping other people find things out about themselves. So in the show sense, rebelling for rock and roll and hip hop and uh, self-exploration, self-awareness and doing it in a way that rocks you with entertainment.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for joining me today. I love talking to you. I love you and your heart and your soul. And thank you for sharing more of it with the world. We need it. I'm so glad the uh, our Rebel Souls community got to enjoy your presence and humor and gifts. So thank you. Love you. Later, Drew Dog. Love you too. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at solbatical.com and follow me at solbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?